Hello friends. This week we have Professor Julia Rookledge, who is a clinical psychologist and the director of the Mental Health and Nutrition Group at the University of Canterbury, New Zealand. This discussion covers many topics, but chiefly why have we underplayed the role of nutrition in relation to our mental health and why is nutrition so crucial to our mental well-being? Professor Rookledge's book, The Better Brain, is out next month and her free online course is available now. Hope you guys enjoy. All the best. Dr. Julia Rookledge, thank you so much for coming on to the Earthly Delights podcast. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. Lovely stuff. First and foremost, what is the crack? How are you keeping? (laughs) How am I keeping? I'm keeping pretty well. I mean, we're really lucky here in New Zealand. we are essentially at this stage in time. I mean, this can always change tomorrow. We have no community cases of COVID. So, you know, th- that should, you know, if you could say that, you'd probably be in a pretty good space. So um, my life is, is free as long as I do not wish to leave the borders of my country, uh, which is, is okay in summer. Um, but I do have family who are in the UK and it would be nice to be able to see them. And I haven't seen them in over a year. Wow. So and that is the downside. The travel restrictions, w- when do they stop? Uh, when did they stop? In March last Sorry. year. Pretty pretty much. Pretty much March last year, we closed the borders to anybody who was not a New Zealander or a citizen or resident. Um, no, no tourists are allowed into New Zealand unless there's some special reason for it. Um, so... And for us to leave, we can technically leave, um, but to get back in is really hard because you have to get one of those spots in the managed isolation, Uh, and there's not a lot of those. So at the moment, there's not another space until June or July. So you certainly can't leave on, you know, on a whim or because of some emergency to go and see somebody who's getting sick. So you certainly can't do that. I get you. Um, just just for people who might not be from, familiar with your work, do you mind giving us just a brief introduction about yourself and and your research? Thanks. Sure. So I'm a clinical psychologist by training. I was trained at the University of Calgary in Canada. You can hear I'm not from New Zealand. Uh, so uh, Canadian, who and I moved to New Zealand on a sort of a whim, got a job. University of Canterbury in 2000 and never left uh, really uh, since then. So I've been here for 20 years. Uh, so I was uh, trained in a very traditional kind of way, as anybody would be in clinical psychology. That you know, we, we, I was trained how to do psychotherapy um, and how to treat psychiatric disorders uh, with those methods, uh, like cognitive behavior therapy. I was also taught, that, and we'll come back to this, but I was also taught that nutrition was completely irrelevant to the brain, uh, which is just absolute nonsense. Uh, but that was the traditional training I came from. But the, you know, the, I guess the, the important marker is that when I was doing my PhD in Calgary in the late 1990s, um, mid, mid to late 1990s, my PhD supervisor, Bonnie Kaplan, was approached by some families in southern Alberta, Canada, who were treating um, their family members with nutrients. And these, these family members had some serious psychiatric disorders. And so they... Um, they wanted to convince Bonnie to research this. And for the, for, you know, initially she was like, oh, just take that snake oil and go somewhere else with it. But she was convinced enough to, by some data that they shared with her to run some small clinical trials um, that she published in the early part of the century. Um, she, so I, I heard about this and was intrigued. I have great respect for Bonnie. Um, I, 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 you know, I can already plug it now is that we've just written a book on this topic. It's called The Better Brain. It's coming out in April. Um, and so, you know, we, we've worked together since, since I did my master's and PhD with her. I, I, so I, I was doing some more ADHD related work on looking at uh, gender differences, um, looking at um, psychosocial differences in adolescence. I did a postdoc with Rosemary Tannock in Toronto. So I was kind of going along that pathway of better understanding mechanisms of what was happening, sort of underlying the the condition, what, what were the specific maybe neurocognitive challenges they were having. Moved to New Zealand, continued to stay in touch with Bonnie. Eventually, I thought, you know what? She's got some interesting data here. And by then I'd lot, you know, that naivete you go through university with thinking that 
uh, we've got the answer to all, you know, how to treat psychiatric disorders. I, that was, I, I, I got that that actually was probably not the accurate perception. Many people don't do well with our current treatments. My own data showed that. So I was hearing about these nutrients and I thought, well, it doesn't fit in with the way I understood the development of psychiatric disorders, but scientists are the critic and conscience of society and we really need to always explore ideas that may sit outside of conventional ways of thinking. That's our job. You know, we can, we can be skeptical, but don't close the door. And that's something that's so important. And I think, unfortunately, with a lot of the polarization that's going on at the moment with in science, like it's either this or it's that, you're either pro or you're mm -hmm. anti, really frustrating because it's never like that. It's always mm -hmm. gray. And we need to, get, uh, uh, scientists have to stop falling into that trap. The media have to stop mm. pushing that. And the public have to stop seeing that it's that mm. way. And so all I did was, st I stood in the gray zone, uh, a very uncomfortable place to be, um, and started to explore the effects of these nutrients on people with psychiatric disorders. So there's my story. And I've been doing that now for over a decade and um, uncovering some pretty interesting things. Absolutely. And I really would like to, I'm looking forward to getting into the, to the, uh, the nitty gritty. But before, I would just like to ask, uh, you mentioned previously um, that over the long term, medication is not particularly effective in, in treating mental illnesses, despite often showing uh, positive signs initially. I was wondering, why do you think that is? Like, why are we still... Uh, pursuing or investing heavily in maintaining our faith in this medication that doesn't really reflect a success per se? Uh, I, don't, I don't know if I have the answer to that completely, but I have some thoughts anyway that are relevant to your, your question. Um, I mean, there's, we can't, <laughs> well, we can't underestimate the placebo effect to that. And that's very strong in short-term trials. So people get better because they think they're getting something um, that's going to help them. And that's a very powerful effect that we shouldn't ignore, that we shouldn't underscore, we shouldn't undermine it. But you have to give something a treatment, somebody a treatment in order to sort of unleash and open up their opportunity to recover. So I think we can do that in many different ways. We've seen it in our own trials. I've seen placebo effects. They are strong. They're powerful. We shouldn't ignore them. We should be trying to harness the placebo effect, our ability to heal ourselves um, just through believing that we can do it. So that's perhaps something that's really tangled itself up in those really short-term trials. But then on top of that, if you ever read Irving Kirsch, the the emperor's, uh, what is it, the the, the Emperor's clothes, or there's something I can't remember the exact title. The new Emperor's drugs. Um, anyway, Irving Kirsch really does uncover that when you are in a, a trial and you experience some of the side effects associated with the the new the the medications, you kind of go, oh, yes, I've been put onto the real thing. I definitely, you know, and there, it, it provides you with hope that you've been put onto the real treatment. And so that means that when you start to uh, fill in the self-reports or you're talking to your doctor, that influences the way you tell people about how your experience is in the trial. Mm. It's We don't have a, a perfect science in terms of knowing when people have recovered from psychiatric disorders or not, or when their symptoms are getting better. It is entirely based on self and observer reports. And so there's no blood test that says it's gone away. We have no biological marker like you would with an infectious disease. You don't have this infectious disease anymore. We can't do it that way. And so then we are, our, our entire science it fall, is is really challenged by the measures that you use. So it's complicated. The measures make it really hard to, to untangle what's really going on. So there's, there's all of that. We do know, I think uh, Joanna Moncrief is, uh, you know, I think she's she's done a lot of fantastic work in terms of her talk, her writing about the chemical, you know, they, they are chemicals and they are having an effect on our brains, um, but they're not necessarily doing what we think they're doing or what we've been led to believe, which is correcting an underlying chemical imbalance, which we've never been able to prove is happening with people who have a psychiatric disorder. But that was the story we were told about why, ser you know, SSRIs work, serotonin selective, um, is that we're, 
It's early in the morning. Um, so serotonin, selective serotonin uh, reuptake inhibitors. There you go. Um, that they are having an effect on the serotonin uh, levels in your in the synapse, and that is true. We know they do that, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that your serotonin was was out of whack to start with. But in doing what it does at the synapse, it does have a biological effect. So there are, you know, it is having effects like alcohol, right? I mean, alcohol has an effect on our brains. We know that. You know that if you've ever had a. I mean, you're Irish. That's a terrible thing to say, but you guys go to the pub once in a while. You got the one. Of, one of the best beers in the world. I'm sure you've had a Guinness before. It has an effect on your brain. Does. That doesn't mean that you had an alcohol deficiency, mm. right? So uh, same as with, with, with SSRIs. They do have an, a chemical effect. So that's So when we think about it in the short term, yes, they seem to have an effect just like alcohol does. In the long term, we create a whole bunch of new problems. So we've enhanced, we we assume it's the SS, the SSRIs that are having the effect in the short term. Possibly, yes, they're having a chemical effect. Possibly, there's also a placebo effect in there. And then long term, though, is that your body adjusts to having this thing. So maybe it doesn't seem to work quite as well. Maybe the placebo effect starts to wear off, but you can't come off it because that creates withdrawal, just like if you were an opioid addict, coming off of, of that or heroin would cause withdrawal. So it's the same biological concept that probably happen, very well happens with some of the, the psychiatric drugs that we've been giving. Now, we didn't know that. And well, I mean, you might think the big pharma did know it and they just didn't share that information. We can't know that for sure. Let's hope that it was, you know, that they really went into this not only for the money, but to help save people or to help improve their mental health. And, um, and unfortunately, uh, now, you know, the Prozac came out in 1987 and now in, in 2021, we're recognizing that, yeah, they might have improved the lives for some people. And I don't want to ever underestimate that there's people out there who really would say that their lives are better as a consequence of these medications. They do exist. People will claim this has saved their lives. Yes, that probably happens, but not to the extent that we thought that it was going to. Mm. And, you know, when I, and I know this personally from having, when I speak to large audiences and I say, uh, you know, put up your hand if you've, you know, someone who's had a, had a psychiatric disorder or, you know, struggles with an illness, everybody's hand goes up. Okay, now keep your hand up if you think that they've, this person has, their problems have resolved as a consequence of the treatments that they received. You have nobody, maybe one or two. You kind of go, what? And I, when I first did this, I was like, really? Is it really that bad? Mm. I think it might be. So it's not, there's not a lot of people who have experienced recovery with these drugs. Yes, maybe it's gotten them to a slightly better place where they can function better. Maybe they can work. But did we make them better? Did we improve their lives? I don't think we can put our hand on the heart and say, yeah, a lot of them have gotten better over the long term. Mm -hmm. So there you go. That's my answer. What comes? Thoughts. Not really an no, answer. No, it's beautiful. Um, what, what comes to mind is that despite this, like despite the majority of us having this experience with a family member or a friend uh, or having this experience ourselves, that collectively we still have this like faith in um these medications and i was wondering it it's, maybe the answer is the same this faith is is maintaining but also why do you believe there was such skepticism you, you mentioned before you and your supervisor also had like initial skepticism about the possibility of micronutrients having uh, such a positive impact on mental health why do you think uh, the faith is remaining in medication oh, I know. It's and we are still life. skeptical of. I wish I could answer that question. I mean, it, it just, I, I even see it really clearly right now during this COVID environment. Absolutely. We need to be looking at solutions of trying to curb this absolute hideous crisis and this pandemic. Yes, we need to be looking at vaccines, but this, it seems like the entire story is about that is going to save us. And I think we're still just as a society, are we just, have we, have we fallen into the trap that the only way to ever get better and to heal is through pharmaceuticals? 
I think we're in a really strong, we're, we're under a strong spell from the pharmaceutical industry. And we cannot, cannot underestimate how powerful they are. They're the most powerful industry in the world alongside the food industry. So they are power, they, they, they do influence politicians. They, you know, the influence where money goes, they influence where research money goes. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's an incredible um, tsunami from that those industries that have have really got the control over everything. I mean, I think about how much money, the billions of dollars that we've thrown into the testing and the you know the public messaging about masks and all of that, and you think. Well, what, you know, if we look at the people who are are, har- are are really doing poorly as a consequence of the pandemic, I hope it's, you know, I'm, I'm giving a pretty accurate picture that it's many of the people are the are people who are who are poor, who have a lot of psychi- who have a lot of co- co-occurring issues, um, you know, medical obesity. These are all life. A lot of these are, are things that are lifestyle factors and things that are within our societal control. Mm-hmm. What would have happened? I mean, it's just an amount, you know, and I know I can, we, this will ne- this magic wand will never go, this will never happen. But what might have happened if instead of doing what we did in terms of the massive amount of money that we put into all of that stuff and the, we spend millions every day on our border control. What if we had done something about raising poverty? What if we'd done something about the the housing, you know, the fact that so many people live in really dense housing in close proximity? What if we had done, a, you know, a tackled this completely differently from a humanitarian perspective and that, you know, maybe some of the people that it's got to do with a whole host of other challenges. Now, I know it's probably not everything. And, and I and I know that it's important that we find um, these medical treatments. But I guess I just worry that we, we do that at the peril of not thinking about uh, the role that our lifestyle is playing in, in our health. Mm. So, um, so that means that when we, you know, so that's just thinking about it. I'm just thinking about it in terms of the, con- the pandemic. And I'm sure there are people out there who will think what I've just said is terrible. I don't know. I don't know who your listeners are. Um, and, and I might be completely wrong and, and, and naive to be suggesting that we think about these bigger, wider societal issues that we could maybe solve and maybe, you know, people would be healthier as a consequence of that. So we've, we've, we've been, it's like we're under this 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 fog that we think that these 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 outside miracles will happen these drugs are going to cure us and so that that lies in pharmacy, in the psychiatric world as well is that we're just waiting for that magic drug that's going to cure these disorders rather than kind of going what environmental factors might be playing a really critical role in the expression of these illnesses? And that's where the, the, your nutritional environment is so important that we are, you know, that's an, you know, I, I've talked about the pharmaceutical industry and how powerful it is. There's the, the food industry. And, and so we've got two things that have happened that are in a, in a very short period of time. We've got the rise of the pharmaceutical industry promising us uh, these miracle cures, um, and we've got the food industry that's feeding us crap, not food, food. Mm-hmm. So you know, if you look at that, and that's such a dramatic change in a really short period of time. Ultra processed food should not be anywhere on our planet. That's it. Yes, it was. Again, it's like you know, if we were kind to the pharmaceutical industry, we go in the 1980s. It was like wow, what a great idea. What a great way to think about psychiatric disorders. It's just this chemical imbalance and it, you know, and it, and it's, it's luring and it's attractive and it's sexy and it sounds really interesting way of conceptualizing this disorders. And we fell into that. Didn't work so well. Um, and with food, it's like, you know, you think about the, you know, you've got the feminist revolution and you've got women who want to work. And then suddenly you've got this, these foods that can be, you know, you can make a dinner in 30 seconds and wow, what a lure. I mean, no wonder we embraced it. Of course mm. it made our lives easier. It was a great technological tra- transformation at the expense of our health. And that's what we're recognizing now is that what happened in making ultra processed food, what happened in making these foods that are, 
that are easy and cheap and um, that, you know, that we can just find them and they're all over the place is that we lost sight of what food does yeah. for our brain and our bodies. And food provides the nourishment that is essential for our brain health and our body health. And if we don't pay attention to that, then what you're consuming is going to be food that is high in macronutrients, fats, proteins, and carbohydrates, and completely or almost devoid in micronutrients, your minerals and vitamins. And so that no one thinks about minerals and vitamins when they think about their food. They might think, yeah, I need to eat fruit and vegetables because I know they're good for me. But do people know why they should eat more fruit and vegetables? Do they know that fruits and vegetables are really dense in those minerals and vitamins? I don't know. I'm I'm not sure that they know that because none of our dietary messages focus on the mineral and vitamin content of food. It's just saying, well, just make sure you get a good balance of your cal, you know, don't eat too many calories, you know, follow your traffic light systems. I think they have that in the UK on your packages, on your ultra processed food packages, you know, make sure you eat ones that have green lights on them. That means it's low in sugar, low in salt, low in saturated fats and low in calories. I, th I think a cardboard box would get a five-star rating. Doesn't mean you should eat it. So that's what I want everyone to think about when they eat a five-star food. Doesn't mean it's, you should eat it. Because there's no, it's, it's all about what's absent. It's all about what's not in there. It's not about what's in it. It's all about what's not in it. Why would you eat a food based on what's not in it? I mean, yes, that's important. But I'd want to eat a food because based on what's in it. Yeah. yeah. So You know, I'm so glad you brought this up because... Uh, firstly, one thing that comes to mind is uh, I think we all know or have been the person who maybe is, takes an interest in going to the gym and then is just focused on this strict carb, protein, fat um, approach to, to what they eat. And it would be great if you could maybe expand on why we actually need to know more and consume more micronutrients and it's why it's not all about the macronutrients. Sure. Okay. So... There's a number of reasons, and I think they're all things that everybody can understand. We do know that those neurotransmitters I've already mentioned, we know they're important. We know they're important for mood. We know they're important for, say, helping put on the brakes or help you concentrate or help regulate sleep. Those are things like serotonin, dopamine, noradrenaline. Um, GABA, those are all things that I think most of the public are pretty um, are up on in terms of understanding that these are things that are going on in our, they're, they're going, they're passed along all the time in our brain, but also in the rest of our body. So if we just look at those in itself, and we all know that they're important, then you think, okay, well, how does our body make them? You can't eat serotonin. So how do, how do we make them? Well, for serotonin, one of the precursors is tryptophan. And tryptophan is an amino acid that you can get out of, you can get out of your food. But to convert tryptophan to serotonin, you need to go through a bunch of chemical pathways because we're all just a chemical soup at the end of the day. So you go from tryptophan to serotonin, you need, you need enzymes that are coded for in your DNA and, and you need micronutrients as your cofactors. So that means that they help the enzymes do the conversions from tryptophan to the next chemical, to the next chemical, to the next chemical, to serotonin. So that's all. That's hopefully something you kind of go, yeah, if you're making a recipe, you need all the ingredients. You're not going to be able to make your souffle if you have, you're missing your eggs. So you're not going to be able to make serotonin if you're missing your minerals and vitamins from your diet. So those mineral environment, and there's no magic mineral environment vitamin. I don't want you to think that I'm going to, I'm going to tell you what magic nutrient that you need to consume to make your broad brain healthy because there's no magic nutrient. We, that's an, you know, another pet peeve that I get grumpy about is that we think that there's, we're just going to find that magic nutrient that we should all consume. Wrong, <laughs> wrong, wrong, wrong. In very, there's a few exceptions. And I think one of the most um, well-known exceptions is vitamin C for scurvy, that just giving vitamin C eliminates scurvy. So there's a few exceptions to that rule, but by the most part, treating a, a complex psychiatric problem with one nutrient is unlikely to do it. So, okay, so you need nutrients 
for your making your neurotransmitters. You need nutrients for um, assisting the Krebs cycle. Krebs cycle, citric acid cycle, what maybe some people are familiar with are the mitochondria that sit in every cell and they make something that's called ATP. And the reason why we should care about ATP is that it's the energy powerhouse. Okay, so that's required for you to be able to do everything that happens in your body again. You need ATP. You look at that citric acid cycle that makes ATP, guess what? You need those cofactors, you need you need the minerals and vitamins all the way along for all those chemical reactions to occur. They're essential. So you need them for that. Otherwise, you're going to guess what? Feel sluggish and slow and foggy. If you don't have, if you're at, if your your Krebs cycle is going to be um, not having again all the ingredients it needs in order to function optimally, you're going to feel it. You're going to have chronic fatigue. You're just going to be tired all the time. You're just and the, I I would say the first overhaul if that's how you're feeling is just get rid of the ultra processed food. It's not doing anything good for your mitochondria eat real food. So that's that's a second reason. I mean, I can keep going. There's a lot of other cycles that are going on. There's what, something that we call the methylation cycle. The methylation cycle is important for producing methyl groups. Methyl group is a C with three hydrogens. So carbon with three hydrogens. This little mole, this little, you know, group, um, you know, the of, of, of atoms together, this molecule, CH3, essential for gene regulation. So we, we've come into a period of time where we really get that gene regulation is important. Turning your genes on and off, super important. It requires these methyl groups. Well, how do you make methyl groups? You need the methylation cycle. Guess what you, is required for the methylation cycle? Micronutrients. So, so I'm trying to get everyone to think about the biochemistry. Not that it's, it's so, you know, yes, it's complicated, but I'm hoping that the way I've explained it, and again, we explain it in the book. <laughs> so just like to try to, to re we really think this is important for the public to understand is that you, you need to get that, that these, these, this is happening all the time in your brain and your body. And you need to feed yourself an adequate amount of these nutrients in order for these things to happen. So that's just a few examples, but there's more, obviously there's more reasons why you need to take micronutrients, but I hope that's enough to kind of at least get people thinking that actually in order for me to think, I need these micronutrients. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, I think many of us feel that sluggishness and then we think, oh, maybe we should get a coffee or some sort of energy drink and, and that will... But that's not like the sustainable long-term solution. And also what you're saying, everyone wants the, the one. Not a sustainable. It's a good short-term solution. Yeah, absolutely. But, but the, and also our urge to try and get, oh, this is the number one uh, microvitamin that I need, or this, is, this uh, vaccine will save us, is I think often as a culture, we're not folk, we, we don't uh, take the perspective of needing the holistic approach to health. You know, we just kind of want the, oh, let me just pick this and pick this and, and I'll be fine. But there, there's no shortcuts to. And then I can keep living my crappy life. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. There's no shortcuts. Yeah. There's no shortcuts. And that's my worry with the vaccine. It's not that a vaccine is bad. Absolutely not. It can certainly, it's going to save hopefully millions and millions of lives. But I just worry that we forget all these other things in our pursuit for that one magic treatment that's going to save us. I just wish we'd look at other things. I mean, I was just, I'm reading about the Spanish flu, um, just because. And, and they talk about how, you know, it was really interesting how the people who died were these young, what were viewed as young, healthy men. That's what you hear a lot about, about the people who died at the, at the Spanish flu. And I think were they really that healthy? These were men who'd been at war for four years. How well were we feeding those men? We were sending them to attend spam. Were we? Did spam come out then? Spiced ham, like in a tin? You know, so you know, how, how nourishing was the food that we were giving these men?
Were they at I don't know. I'm just asking the question. I don't know the answer, but I'm kind of like, I, I'm not convinced that they were really that healthy. <laughs> no, it's fair. And even considering, surely a huge majority of them would be suffering with some sort of post-traumatic stress disorder as well, which is weakening the immune system. Possibly. Yeah. Um, so sorry for well, listeners. It, it, I mean, one thing that we've learned, what I... Sorry, for, for listeners who are thinking, okay, I really enjoy what Dr. Ruktaj is saying, but can I hear some of the, the research and the hard evidence to suggest that my, my mental health, my health overall will improve if I improve my microvitamins? Like what, what is the research that you would like to, to provide for our listeners? So the research on, so what we do know is that the research that's been done on Mediterranean diet is really quite robustly telling us that we can should all be reducing, in my opinion, eliminating ultra-processed food intake and increasing our whole food, real food intake. And I think that would go a long way towards helping many, many people with their psychiatric challenges. Although I will say that probably not necessarily everyone. And there's a number of reasons why. And that's where my research comes in and has been relevant because I always say food first. I don't want to put everyone on supplements. Our, re our research on micronutrients in pill form, and, and it's there's no magic. It's the full breadth of the nutrients that plants that min uh, plants take up minerals from the soil. There's about 15, 16 of them that are essential. They bring them into the plant. The plant uses them to make vitamins, and there's about 15, 16. So we usually say 30 is a pretty good number in terms of your mineral vitamin breadth. Um, so that's what we've been researching. No special nutrient, usually at doses though higher than what has been dictated to us by the dietary guidelines about what is sort of reasonable. We go higher than that because none of those numbers and the dietary guidelines tell us what's optimal for brain health. They're based on what's good for your bones or your heart, but not your brain, which is ridiculous because the brain is the hungriest and uh, organ of the body. So we've just been neglecting it completely at our peril. Uh, so our research on the micronutrients is showing that some people may need more, even though they may eat a good diet. Number of reasons for that. First of all, is that we have a lot of people on the planet to feed. I don't know how many, 7 billion, a lot, far, there's a lot, a lot of us. And so that means that you have to cut corners in terms of agricultural practices. So we're not we're not rotating anymore. Nobody seems to do that anymore. Rotating, letting you know fields sit and recover and and replenish the minerals that are in the soil. That doesn't seem to happen as much. When we do replenish the soil with agricultural practices, we tend to just put NPK in there, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. We don't put all the other trace minerals back into the soil. So that's in your. I mean, somebody who's a better steward of the land uh, may do that, but that doesn't necessarily happen in the big farming productions. We use glyphosate, which is a mineral chelator. Um, and so in, in lots of ways, you know, obviously it's, again, it's a solution that seemed like a good idea. We have so many of these um, in history. Yeah. Wow. It gets rid of pests. Mm. But what, guess what it does? It it uh, seems to make our food less nourishing and less nutrient dense. So either it's I, it's I'm not sure which is the way, and maybe it's a number of different ways that uh, glyphosate or, or Roundup does this. But it either through being attached to the plant, maybe it's chelating. But another way is that it um, if you've got glyphosate in the soil and then it rains, what it does and it, and it binds to minerals because that's what it does. And then you rain, then it just sort of washes it all away because it's water soluble. So it just, boom, you end up with a more depleted soil. So there's a lot of research that we need to do around that effect. Climate change, increasing carbon dioxide. Yes, it makes plants grow, but it makes them, it grows faster. And therefore there's less opportunity and time for the minerals to be up, mm. taken by the, the plant into the plant. Did I say that right? From the soil into the plant. So therefore it's less nutrient dense. We grow crops to, uh, I know it sounds awful. We grow crops to make them look, make them look juicy, to look, make them look pretty, but we never select based on nutrient content. So again, you know, we're, our selection of foods is based on its aesthetic purposes. It's like, you know, choosing your, your long-term marital partner based on how they look. We hope, <laughs> I hope that's not how we are, but that's what we do with our food. So you wouldn't do that with your partner. So why do you do that with your food? Um, <laughs> And 
so there's there's a whole host of reasons why we can't trust our our food to be as nourishing as it used to be, even if you are reading, eating real food um, and real whole food. And then there's genetic differences. Uh, you know, if you think about, I told you about the story of scurvy. Well, we discovered that because of the of putting limes aboard ships. And I always say, well, okay, it was really bad. 40% of people died from scurvy. So that's a pretty bad mortality rate. But why didn't everybody die? You know, they all they're all eating the same thing. So I think, well, they must have come on board nutritionally in a different state or genetic differences or other things that influence whether or not you're going to succumb to illness. So is it possible that there are genetic differences? And we think there's there's some robust research that shows that, yes, there probably are some genetic differences that mean that your maybe your enzymes aren't manufactured quite as well as others, so they just don't work as well. And we can solve that by flooding the system with more nutrients. And there's amazing, it's worth looking at Bruce Ames, who's a biochemist, who's really established that for many, a number of different disorders. So... I hope that's enough of a sort of a, a run through. Again, we plug it in the book. We explain all of this in the in the book about some of these these variables that have changed that mean that even if you manipulate your diet, even if you go clean, that for some people that's not enough, and that's when you might need additional nutrients. And I've seen many people like that where they do have good diets and yet they still are unwell. Um, and also, so so that's when we think maybe they they might need more. And I don't want to I don't want your listeners to think that this is a solution for everybody. It's not. I've seen people who do not recover from really serious psychiatric disorders or symptoms using nutrients, but I've seen many, many, many that do. And I've seen the over I don't know thousands of people now in our research. And also based on emails I get from people all around the world, my TEDx talk is, you know, it's done really well. It's got 1.7 million views. So I hear from a lot of people from the public over the years. And so I've heard a lot of great stories of either manipulation of diet, changing their diet and or adding in additional nutrients and that that's gotten them to a really good space. So it's definitely worth, worth understanding that it's a complicated and we're all different. And so our nutritional needs are different. And so one, a solution that works for somebody is not necessarily going to work for everyone. And I don't want to ignore all of the other contributing factors to mental illness let, that if we could just eliminate poverty or we could um, you know, reduce the amount of trauma people are exposed to, which is impossible. But if you know, we could start with domestic violence and hitting children, that would be a really good place to start because we know that that has a long-term effect on people's mental health. Absolutely. Um, just a few questions that I'd love to ask on the follow-up. Compared to some of the research on uh, medication for, say, depression or ADHD, are there what what are the side effects, or if if there are any, um, with your micronutrient research? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a good question. Side effects that we see are typically mild and transitory. So we'll, and, and it doesn't seem to be a reason why people drop out of our studies. Very rarely do people drop out because of a side effect, although it has happened, but very rarely. Maybe a rash comes on and they just, they think it's associated with the micronutrients. And so they, that might lead them to drop out. Um, headaches and nausea, very easily resolved with just making sure people take it with plenty of food and water. Uh, and there's some other things you can do as well to try to minimize the side effects. So overall, we've looked at safety over long term for people who take the nutrients. There hasn't been anything that's come out that's made us concerned about long term side effects. I can never guarantee safety of anything. I mean, none of us can. And so, but what I can be assured by is that to date we haven't seen anything that really that concerns me or any of the physicians who who have worked on our clinical trials that suggests that we have to put you know a black box warning on micronutrients even though i know that there are a lot of media stories out there that micronutrients kill us there's i mean i could spend an hour telling you what's wrong with all that research that's been you know propagated in the media let's just you know simple simple things about that stuff is that it's on based on single nutrients hopefully your listeners now understand there's no single magic nutrient and that giving one nutrient is going to cause deficiencies and and unbalances in other nutrients so i personally would never do it mm. so that's why you know all those studies that say they're killing you are based on single nutrient studies 
And single nutrient studies have just really not proven, and as I said, with rare exceptions, haven't really proven much to us. So uh, that's that's why the, that none of that research applies to the broad spectrum micronutrient approach that I've been taking. Thanks for making that clear. One thing also that I wanted to ask was, uh, in like the mental health and well-being like industry per se, it feels like almost every two weeks you hear about, oh no, this is the thing that you need to focus on, and this is the next thing you need to focus on. Whether that's you know meditation, some sort of uh, some sort of specific exercise, some sort of magic food. Um, oh no, it's it's about connection. It's about meaning. It's about these things. Um, I would love to know your like per se uh, hierarchy of well-being. And where does nutrition fit in it? Sure. I mean, the nutrition is foundational. And so I would say you've got to start there. <laughs> that would be, it's foundational because of the biochemistry. It's got, it's going to support you if you go into psychotherapy. If your brain is well nourished, you're going to be a better able probably to access psychotherapy. I've heard that a lot anecdotally. We haven't done research on that specifically, but it makes it's logical that when you're well nourished, you're going to be better able to cope. I mean, our research has shown from based on uh, this, all the research that we've done after an earthquake and after floods that it seems to help giving people additional nutrients when they're under stress seems to make them better, better able to cope and more resilient. So it makes sense that you take someone like that and then you, you try psychotherapy or even some of the methods that, you know, where you have to activate yourself for treatment of depression, you might be be more able to engage in that if you've got a well-nourished brain. So to me, it's foundational, absolutely foundational. The first thing that we should all be doing and making sure that our, our children are well-nourished. So that's the first start. So then the next start would be, um, I mean, personally, if I'm under a lot of stress, then I would supplement with more nutrients. And so we've had a lot of stress in Christchurch, and that's the sort of an obvious place to start. And that's based on our research that I've done and I've seen internationally and globally. B vitamins are, are have really stunningly been shown to be good at, at helping people with stress and who isn't under stress at the moment. So that's a good, you know, next sort of step. And then that's when I think you're able to engage in other lifestyle factors. Now, of course, ex, ex, you know, all of the things that have been shown by research to be important for good mental health, I don't ignore. So make sure that you are exercising, you know, on a daily basis. And I do yoga two to three times a week. And I, you know, I try to be mindful and I, I, try, I absolutely always prioritize sleep, never gets compromised, never, ever compromise my sleep. So the, and then, you know, good routines, making sure that you're well connected with other people, you know, don't just work. All of those things are going to put us into a good mental health and physical health space. So that's my thoughts on that hierarchy. Wonderful. Thank you. But is there anything that you feel needs to be said right now for people who um, may not read your book, but are interested in reading your book, for, but you need to say, hey, guys, just just I need to tell you this. Oh, that's in the book? <laughs> I, I think I've, I think I've already said it. I think I've said what's what's the clear, clear message from the book, which is eat real food. Like and and I've explained the reason why you should eat real food and why you should really pay attention. I mean, just remember, there's not a single study that's shown that the Western diet has been good for us for anything, nothing. So why the hell do we think this is a reasonable way to eat? Why do we think that this is the first, you know, go-to for food to nourish our brain and our bodies? I mean, it would, gosh, we we have been blindsided by the food industry to convince us that this is the kind of food that we should be nourishing our brains with. And that's just wrong. So that's the the main messages from the book is why you should care about nutrient about nutrient dense food. It's not hard to eat well. This isn't you do not need a dietitian degree to eat well. I don't need to be a dietitian to tell people that you should just eat stop eating crap food. If you need to start doing an elimination diet because you may have a food allergy or there's something else that might be going on that may be compromising your ability to eat real food, and there are things like that, like some people do react to dairy or they react to gluten, a whole bunch of different reasons potentially for that. So I'm that's where I would say go see a dietitian because I'm not going to get myself as a psychologist involved in that kind of level of elimination because you need to make sure that you don't cause any inadvertent deficiencies in doing so. But 
I, and I'm not, I, this, it's, I'm not, I don't talk about fat, you know, we, we have a little bit about fad diets in there, but say that, you know, at this point, there's not a lot of research to support going keto or going vegan or vegetarian or, you know, FODMAPs or um, intermittent fasting, all of that stuff. There's no nothing there that says that that's, that's going to solve your mental health problems. Doesn't mean they won't, but I'm saying the research isn't there yet. So that means I don't have to get in, myself involved in any of the fad diets because the research isn't, is mixed or it's just not there yet. So, but the Mediterranean diet is pretty robust. It's very robust as a go-to, easy message, eat real food, not seeds, your your legumes, your beans, your lentils, your, your fresh fruit and vegetables, eat in season. Um, it can, it absolutely, you can do this cheaply if you learn how to cook. You learn how to how to shop locally, how to uh, maybe grow your own vegetables, join a community garden. There, are, you know, it doesn't have to be expensive. People say you have to eat well has, is expensive. Not, it doesn't have to be that way. We have recipes in the book that are, you know, have where we've said we want them to be cheap in order to to cook them. So they're based on these principles: um, legumes, black bean. You know, it's just they're cheap. You can buy them in bulk, and they're so, and they're so nourishing. So they're really great go-to source for both protein and for getting lots of nutrients out of them. So. Lot, there's there's no excuse that it's too expensive to go and eat real food. Um, we've been lured into this illusion that ch- food is cheap. It's cheap, yes, maybe at the supermarket, but it's not cheap for your health, and it's not cheap for your health long term either. So, you know, give it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's not a hard message, I don't think, to tell people to stop eating food that isn't real. It's not food. It's manufactured chemical soups that are just not good for you. They're, they might give you a bit of a good high and addiction in the short term. Uh, they are not doing anything good for you long term. Let go of them. So easy message. And then explain, as I said just now, around why nutrients are important um, why some people might need more. And then we talk about the supplements and the research that we've done on, on supplements. And that's overall the message of the book. But I think, I hope it's going to be useful for the public. Um, and I hope it's going to be useful for clinicians, professionals, politicians, prime ministers. <laughs> yeah. And then on the, just on the side, on top of writing a book, I also did a... Um, a, a mass online open access course, and that starts March the third, I think it is, and it is online. So if you don't like to, um, that if you don't like to uh, read, you can go and look at our like this. It's an online. It's all videos. So if you're more of a visual learner, then I have created twenty nine five to ten minute videos on which are sort of follow the book and so cover the very sort of similar topics in a different way but really accessible to the public so that's um, on the edX platform super easy to find as I said free for anyone to do that or if you want to pay I think it's like $150 you can get some kind of credential and you know answer you know you have to do some extra assignments uh, so that I think is fantastic because there's so few resources resources out there for professionals to learn about this interface between mental health and food. That's wonderful, Julia. I'm really looking forward to reading the book and I've already enrolled in the course, which I'm looking forward to as well. Um, and just on the Mediterranean diet, I have to say I, I was born and raised in Dublin, Ireland, but I've recently moved to Italy. And the one thing like that I can't ignore is the the use of real food. It's just in ireland yeah we use real food but it's also very common to have some just food to just throw in the oven and we'll be ready in 20 minutes but in italy like i've just seen that like the, the fridges are quite small because all the food they have is just is just real food so they don't really need to keep so much cool just some juices and some water and <laughs> yeah. um I, but thanks yeah. so much for your time Julie. i know when i get when they let us out i'm going to italy Yes, yes, yeah. please come, please come. You're welcome. Uh, one last question, Julia. What is your guilty pleasure in terms of food? Sure. Um, I mean, I, again, in the book, 
Yeah, in terms of food. Um, I, there's, it doesn't mean you can't have, I mean, if you're eating essentially a whole food diet, that doesn't, then absolutely, that means that you're nourishing your brain and your body and having the occasional treat is absolutely fine. And you should enjoy it. I mean, I personally, um, I've, I, I actually, by changing your diet, you, you, you're, your your tastes tend to change and i just don't have that same need and desire for sweet foods that i would have as a kid i was i i grew up on a not a great diet um but uh so but now i prefer dark chocolate for example absolutely fine in fact um there's a lot of nutritional benefits from dark chocolate uh my son is working at an ice cream store and i am enjoying going for the occasional ice cream with lots of really delicious flavors so you know so it does it and, and uh, red wine is part of the uh, you know the mediterranean diet so an occasional glass of red wine really? is you know part of that that lifestyle as you probably know in, in living in italy is that the wine is a part of it and there are you know, the, as long as you're not drinking an excessive amount, and I certainly don't want to give you liberty to your listeners to just go and drink, a, a, you know, an awful lot of alcohol, but having some alcohol with your meal would be consistent with the Mediterranean diet. Yeah, I've, I've witnessed um, my girlfriend's grandmother have the smallest half glass of wine with lunch religiously every day. And it's just so it's just so foreign to me from my culture. Oh, it's just I've, okay. I've never seen it before, but it's wonderful to see. Julia, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And um, I'm really looking forward to reading your book and uh, taking part in the online course. I'll provide the link to your book and the, the online course on our show notes. Thank you so much for having me on. Hi, guys. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review if you haven't already. Every review helps us climb the podcast charts so that even more of you can listen to our amazing guests. We really appreciate the support. Remember to tune in next week. But until then, keep safe and have a good one.